Montana Innocence Project. This podcast tells the real stories behind wrongful and unjust convictions and illuminates the complex issues responsible for making our criminal justice system unjust. Today, we are bringing you the story of Dave Wilkes. He was freed by the Montana Innocence Project in 2020 after spending nine years wrongfully incarcerated for the deliberate homicide of his three-month-old son, Gabriel. Let's begin unpacking. At first, I didn't think that they were coming at me as a suspect. I kind of wondered, though, just because. I mean, I'd, I'd only had Gabriel home a short time. Um, I knew my family wasn't going to think I was suspect because they knew how, how proud I was and, and how happy I was to be a dad. And, you know, trying all those years and then I said I was almost 40, you know, and, and you finally have a child. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, I, I, you know, I got this beautiful gift. It, it's weird, though, because um, the first time that I'd had anybody come to me as far as like if I was suspect or this or that was a doctor. I want to say it was over at Sacred Heart. One of the doctors had uh, had come in and we were either sitting in a break room or something. And he'd sat me down and basically said, well, it's suspected shaken baby syndrome. And I was like, what? I'm like, what do you mean? Shaken baby syndrome is a medical legal diagnosis in babies and toddlers responsible for nearly 50 wrongful convictions in America alone. It is defined by three specific symptoms, all of which can be attributed to other medical conditions. But when presented together, doctors and lawyers can get tunnel vision, misdiagnose, and wrongfully convict. Up until 2008, I'd never even known or heard about SBS, shaken baby syndrome. But my son's crash and eventual death would teach me more than I ever wanted to know. They, the proponents of this theory, say that it involves a triad of symptoms. There's bleeding in the retinas of the eyes, bleeding under the dural matter of the brain, which is subdural hematoma or subdural hemorrhage, and brain swelling, all occurring in the absence of a recent car accident or other clear explanation for the injuries. They say that shaken baby syndrome is thought to be because of the violent shaking of an infant. So in other words, if you take your child to an emergency room with no clear history of what's going on and you can't tell the doctors what's going on, basically it must be shaken baby syndrome. That's, that's the whole point they're going to go to. They have doctors, they have uh, emergency triad teams that have all been trained in this. So when, when something like this comes up, uh, it, this is basically what happens. If you recall, that first night at the hospital, Dave could not tell doctors about Gabe's entire medical history because he only had him for about a month at that point. He could only inform them about the severe stomach problems. So all they saw was a single dad with a recent CPS case and an unresponsive baby. Not everyone knows the law or has a medical degree, so the system can catch you sleeping, per se. The term shaken baby syndrome was actually changed by the American Academy of Pediatrics to either abusive head trauma or non-accidental head injury. Another interesting aspect of this is the frequency between male and female babies. Up to almost 70% of these male babies end up being diagnosed with shaken baby syndrome. Why? 
because first male babies have a larger head circumference compared to females. So this increases the likelihood that a male newborn will incur a small subdural hematoma from the minor trauma of the birthing process that can later either re-bleed and present with a symptomatic subdural hematoma that could be misdiagnosed as shaken baby or child abuse. Gabe did have the triad of symptoms, but no broken bones, neck fractures, major bruising, or any other sign of injury you would expect to see had he been abused. Specifically, he had no bruising on the front of his brain, which would be present had he been violently shaken. Simply put, doctors didn't take a close enough look. Years later, when the Montana Innocence Project got the case, the misdiagnosis was revealed. But by that point, Dave had already lost nearly a decade of his life to wrongful conviction. My name is Katie Carpenter, and I am the legal director of the Montana Innocence Project. Shaken baby syndrome began as a hypothesis in 1974. This doctor came up with this idea of shaken baby whiplash syndrome. And the whiplash is an important part of it because it he basically was applying the kind of experiential understanding of when somebody's in a car accident, what sort of damage, what sort of um, symptoms you would see. From there, it just, this hypothesis really gained speed because I don't want to jump over the fact that babies were showing up with these really scary symptoms and we didn't have a good explanation. This hypothesis attempted to explain what was happening. The problem that came from there is that, I'm just going to say it wasn't meaningfully tested. Shaken baby syndrome was not reviewed by an independent scientific agency until 2016. The review found evidence for shaken baby syndrome to be insufficient. The report states that it would be incompatible with both doctors' professional duties and the regulations concerning legal certification to definitely conclude that a child was shaken when the triad of symptoms is present. Of the Montana Innocence Project's 12 cases, including freed client cases and ones under active litigation, three involve shaken baby syndrome. Attorneys don't go to medical school and attorneys have to, on these cases, seek out medical professionals to assess the evidence. And for a, a variety of reasons that, you know, it wouldn't take a whole lot of creativity to come up with, attorneys don't do it all the time. And that's exactly what happened in Dave's case. The attorney didn't consult a medical expert when the entire conviction was based on a medical diagnosis. Gabe was life flighted to Sacred Heart in Spokane after two days at community in Missoula. Dave and Sonia took the train to Spokane that same day and never left Gabe's side. That was pretty much, uh, you know, Sonia and I'd wake up in the morning if we'd slept at all. Because uh, there was one point there, there was probably, I want to say there was probably about a good week that we didn't sleep or eat for anything. You know, I mean, it, it was, you know, we, we were right there next to his bedside that whole point. And I remember a nurse coming in and telling us, hey, look, you guys got to go get some sleep. You got to, you know, you got to eat, try to do something. You know, you, you can't spend all your time here. And basically, and I mean, even still, it, it basically was just a blur. Um, I remember, you know, Gabriel having tubes coming out of him. I'm pretty sure they had a feeding tube in him at that point. 
I can't remember if they had him on a ventilator. I, I just I, I just remember there was a lot of machines and uh, I don't know, a lot of doctors and nurses coming in and out. But I, I, I don't know if my mind has tried to block it out. Every everything that happened from the fourth to the day he passed has been there's there's certain things that really stick out. And then there's other things that they're not they're not even cloudy. It's more like looking through like an opaque screen. Um, I can kind of kind of see it, kind of remember it. But then, too, I don't know, like I said, maybe it's my mind trying to block it out because it, it, it was really emotional and, and painful or I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's because for the most part, I, I can remember pretty much all this like a bad, you know, like a bad movie in my head, if that makes any sense. They continued running tests, but could not identify a way to save him. He was transferred to hospice for the last week of his life. He passed away on October 26, 2008. So I I had been baptized when I was 10, I believe it was. I was at a uh I was at a Bible camp up in Big Fork, up there, Big Fork Lake, I think it was, or Polson Lake, one of the, it was that area up there. Again, my grandparents, they were religious. Uh my dad's mom and dad, you know, my grandparents on my dad's side, they were religious. Um I basically been raised up in the church at one point. I guess I had the feeling that if I didn't get Gabriel baptized, his soul was just going to be like in purgatory or whatever. Um, and not to get into a big theological discussion there either. I don't know. It, it, I, I'm still not sure as far as my reasoning behind it. I just, I, I felt it was the only thing to do at that point. I just didn't want him out there, just, you know, kind of, again, I guess, in purgatory. Many of the overturned shaken baby syndrome convictions occurred around the same time as Dave's. The diagnosis grew in popularity in the mid-2000s. Detectives with the Missoula Police Department interviewed Dave twice while Gabe was still alive to understand what had occurred that night. But now armed with the shaken baby syndrome diagnosis, the Missoula Police Department called in Dave for a third interview. I believe at this point it was Dean Christensen and Guy Baker in the room. I, I want to say the interview lasted maybe 45 minutes, maybe an hour. I, I don't remember right off. I didn't have an attorney that day either. I didn't feel I needed one. Um, I didn't have the money to get one, first off. So anyway, they called me in and we're sitting there doing the interview. And right off the bat, I'm basically told that I'm full of shit. My story's full of holes. And I said, well, first off, and, and this is in the interview notes, the uh, the transcript from the, the third interview. I said, well, look, I said, first off, it's not a story. I said, I don't have a clue as what the hell happened with my boy. Detective Christensen basically told me my story was full of holes and, and I was full of shit. And I jumped up and I slammed my hands down on the table and I'm like, no, nah, bullshit. I said, I ain't putting up with this. I said, I came in here all three times. I've never brought an attorney with me. I'm not copping this shit. Y'all can kiss my ass. F you and I'm out of here. Well, they weren't letting me go. They told me basically to calm down. I broke down. I was crying at this point, this and that. And uh, so they, they got me to finally calm down. And they're trying to go through uh, some of this stuff with me, trying to tell me about what was going on. And I wasn't having it. I said, no, I said, that's bullshit. I said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing this. And I kept telling them that I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. So anyway, uh, I don't know, I want to say about, 
it might have been about 40 minutes into the interview, I told him, I said, look, I said, if you're going to charge me, charge me and I want an attorney or something to that effect. I, I don't remember right off what I told him. I, I was really upset and not realizing that I was going to get arrested at this point. So anyway, they basically tell me, well, I'm under arrest for, for a homicide. And I was like, what? And uh, yeah, so they arrested me and I was booked into the jail. I think it was March 27th, if I remember right, of 2009. Dave believes his appearance and persona contributed to the shaken baby syndrome diagnosis and his wrongful conviction. I had an uncle tell me years ago, you can't assume anything because making uh, assuming things makes an ass out of you and me. And I've always, I've always remembered that. I mean, we're talking 45 years ago. I, I remember hearing this. Making any kind of assumption without proof. Okay, so you, you've already convicted a person before they've even got into court. I was always a person that I never gave a crap what people thought about me. I never really did. I mean, it, it you know, hey, you either like me or you don't. I'm not going to I'm not going to lose sleep. I'm not going to have a bunch of real estate in my head because I'm worried about what you're thinking. But when law enforcement gets involved and the system gets involved, it turns into a whole nother ball game. It's not like they have a book that says, well, OK, tattoos, long hair, long goatee, gruff voice, rides a Harley. Yep, that's the guy. Um, he's a bad, bad man, Your Honor. Uh, it, it's not like it come to people like that per se. And that, that's not something that I would want to put out there either, because I do have respect for law enforcement. It, it's the idea that you can take a guy that's clean cut and in a suit and nine times out of 10, that guy is not going to be looked at as a suspect per se, maybe until they find out later on. But so somebody of, of my acclaim, I guess you could say, God forbid I played in a rock and roll, you know, a heavy metal band and, and, you know, leather jacket and ride a Harley and, and the gruff voice and I smoke cigarettes and God forbid I drink beer. And they would rather look at somebody that's clean cut and, you know, college educated and, you know, high dollar, uh, highfalutin is what we call it down here. They look at somebody like me and they're probably thinking, and I can't, again, I can't put words in people's mouths or, or say this is what they were thinking, but they're probably looking at me going, well, this guy's a drug dealer, uh, you know, just a piece of scum, um, you know, doesn't pay his bills, da-da-da-da-da. The only reason I had this persona, I mean, aside from being a biker and, and I've, I've lived around him and, and kind of grew up around him, you know, from when I left home, it was more about... Uh, the music that I was playing, we all had long hair, you know, not everybody had a long goatee. I mean, that was more my, you know, more my kind of shtick on things. And I never been one to, to assimilate, I guess you could say, or, you know, try to be like everybody else or all the fads. I've always been a ripped up, ripped up jeans and, and t-shirt kind of guy, you know, uh, you know, the whole eighties persona, the whole rock star persona. The problem is, is if you're assertive, and not necessarily take what you want, but if you're assertive in life, people are going to look at you as, oh, well, this is the aggressor, and and especially when you get somebody that looks like me. And and I, I know that's what a lot of it was now. It had to have been. I mean, it, what is their other reasoning? Because nobody has ever came in 14 years. Nobody has ever came and told me, okay, Dave, this is why. No, they, they came after me for shaking baby. Okay, well, now that we've discounted all that, what is your other choice? It's just all these different stereotypes that they use and people don't realize that 
first and foremost, we're human. We're all, we, we all do the same things. We talk, we eat, we go to the bathroom, you know, we go to sleep, we get up, we go to work. You know, usually you can't just make these faulty assumptions and figure, oh, okay, well, that's going to work, especially if there's paperwork involved because the paperwork always comes out in the end. That was the case for Dave. The paperwork did come out in the end and eventually led to his conviction being overturned. The Montana Innocence Project took on his case in 2012. Dave had been wrongfully incarcerated for deliberate homicide for three years at that point, forced to mourn the loss of his child and grapple with being convicted of his murder at the same time. All of this occurred behind bars where Dave had no family support and faced the stigma of being convicted of killing a baby. This would be challenging for anyone But Dave's childhood and already existing trauma made the pain insurmountable. Because for Dave, giving Gabe the life he never had was the most important thing to him. So I left out of Missouri in 1977. I was six. Uh, I went to live with my grandparents. Me and my sister, we went to live with our grandparents in Spokane, Washington. Um, They were really good people. You know, my grandfather was a hard worker. Uh, my grandmother, very religious. Both of them were religious. My my mom had left down here early on. Um, and my dad just didn't have enough money to take care of a couple of kids. And, you know, tried to do this and work, you know, at the same time. Um, so basically, we went to live with my mom's mom and dad. Um, everybody was trying to do the right thing. Uh, grandma and grandpa at that point, they were, they weren't old, but they were getting up there in age and they didn't have, they, they had, we had a good home. Uh, we weren't abused, none of that, but they were, they were getting up there in age and they weren't going to be able to raise a couple of, you know, a couple of, we weren't infants, but we weren't, you know, like teenagers or any of that either, but they, they were getting up there in age. So they decided to. Uh, send us to live with my my grandmother's brother, my great uncle. I think I was about ten years old when we got adopted. Um, every, everything seemed to be, you know, more or less okie dokie. And so, as a teenager, I started rebelling and, and doing all the things teenage kids do. You know, I was drinking beer, which I shouldn't have been doing, and uh, smoking weed with buddies of mine, and and you know all the stupid shit that teenage kids do. I remember there was an argument that that we had had, uh, my adopted parents. Uh, I'd asked them about my real parents because I wanted to know then what had happened. You know, I was getting old enough. I figured, you know, I'd be able to handle it. Well, I didn't find out any of that until I was almost 50 years old. But anyway, so I basically told them, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this and, and uh, I'm leaving and you're not my mom and dad. And, and they didn't take that well. Um there was, there was, I can't say there was a lot of physical abuse in the house, in the home, but there was some that would definitely be frowned on upon today. Um, some that I brought on, you know, because of my attitude or whatever, you know, get my ass whooped and it, it went from not just a regular spanking, but it, it, it went overboard. So anyway, I was leaving home, got out of my own and basically had to learn a lot of this stuff about life myself. Uh, you know, kind of fumbling through and, and surprisingly, I made it this far. 
<laughs> the reason it was so important for me to be a good father and to show my son love and compassion and and I, I can't say that I wasn't shown those things when I was younger, but there was a lot of that missing because I probably wouldn't have turned out the way I did. And I can't blame that on anybody. It, it's a matter of I probably wouldn't have made a lot of those mistakes that I've made in my life prior to Gabriel being born or any of that had I had maybe better guidance or, or you know, somebody just actually giving a shit. The main reason it was important for me to be a good father to Gabriel and show him all the things I wasn't is because of what I went through. I can't say I hated my real parents for a number of years, but I I was angry. I really was. Uh, I was like, why was I giving up? Because I didn't know. And I mean, I, I understand it now. You know, they were trying to they were trying to do right by me at one point. My grandparents were trying to do right by me at one point. And, you know, we, there is no manual, you know, you try to do the best you can with what you've got and life gets in the way sometimes um, is basically how I put it now. So it was important for me to be a good dad to Gabriel, to show him that he was loved. He would know where his parents were, were at, both of them, not just one or, or the other, you know, not single dad or single mom, but the whole family. And to have all the things that I didn't have. Following the nightmare of Gabe's time in the hospital, Dave faced a second nightmare of being wrongfully accused and convicted. The legal argument that ultimately led to Dave being freed was ineffective assistance of counsel. Dave's trial attorney did nothing to refute the validity of the shaken baby syndrome diagnosis. We will learn more about that in the next episode. Justice is a Montana Innocence Project podcast. The artwork was created by Rob Truax, and the music was composed by Corey Fay. To learn more about the Montana Innocence Project, visit our website at mtinnocenceproject.org or follow us on social media at Big Sky Innocence. Thank you for unpacking injustice with the Montana Innocence Project.